Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Once. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, that's what I need to ho- hold out for. Just when I need a surgery for something that's, and I can I just get the guy from plastics in here? Just give me a little, yeah, little yeah lift. a little, a little lift. So my mom had this condition where she had her eyelids were drooping, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like, and so did all my all her sisters have the same thing, and um, so she wanted the surgery that was going to do that. You can't see on the podcast, but it's really funny. I looked insane, and. <laughs> But the thing was, my mom, and this is sad and funny, when she was sort of dying of cancer, decided she wanted all these things done. It was so weird. And the doctors huh. were like, like, hmm. like implants. She got implants right before she died. Teeth implants. Oh, not, no. <laughs> not boobs. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That would be insane. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Actually, like, I want to be the best looking. I want to be yeah. the most fuckable corpse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no boobs, but she wanted. She wanted. She got teeth. I mean, teeth is something you kind of need, so it's not. But I was like, yeah, Mom, yeah, are yeah. you sure the ones in the back you need to be getting because you can't mm-hmm. see them and you're going through chemo and this is insane. Yeah. But she wanted it, so she had like fifteen grand worth of teeth put in or 20 grand and then she died two months later and i was like can we get a refund <laughs> wow two months it was okay. rough it was rough but anyway Listen, she, she wanted, wanted to meet saint peter looking her best her best and she wanted that eye surgery done and they were like listen ma'am you like literally riddled with cancer like i'm not sure putting you under the knife to get your eyelids is but she she was in you know denial and she didn't want to of course who wants to really look at oh yeah all this is futile because i'm gonna die soon so sure sure she's like like, okay yeah she was like trying to she was buying the right like she was buying time i know somebody who had that eyelid surgery done and then they just look like (laughs) yeah their eyes wide open it's a little startling it's a little startling what's happening with your band so they're in seattle playing some shows and um i did not go with them clearly and um they're they're doing fine. Their new single came out and they are, they're okay. And, but meeting, I wanted to get into, like, I'm really into the informational interview, even though I have to drag myself to go. And I, I'm the one who asked for it. Um, <sighs> so dumb, but I went and she was, she was lovely and gave me the ropes of like, this is what managers actually do. So I'm just educating myself because, you know, I'm not going to grad school for music management. Um, right. not going to do that. Um, and, uh, she was lovely. She's an amazing person and she's a friend of my cousins and she agreed to meet with me and, um, yeah, nothing. I'm just in, I'm still, I guess all this to say, I'm still in the information gathering stage and I'm mm-hmm. just seeing what's out there in the world, the jobs people do, like Studs Turkle. I'm just, there you see, go. You're I'm, doing your own, conducting your own research. I'm a modern day Studs Turkle. Hey, let me run this by you. I just so read something grit. about grit. Oh, you did? What was yeah, it? I can't remember. <laughs> okay. Well, so my thing about grit is I think it's a glamorous kind of idea more often than not. And 
and it's kind of part of bootstraps culture and American blah, blah, blah. But I just looked up the definition to remind myself, and it means courage and resolve, strength of character. I feel like people, when they talk about grit, often mean just muscling through something Mm -hmm. without without acknowledging the complexity of it in any way, as opposed to what it really is, which is, and courage has a lot to do with it. Oh, I find there's a real lack of courage. Like I agree. I think that the, the epitome of grit to me is when I'm midway or three quarters of the way up the hill when I'm hiking and I literally have to, well, I'm gritting my teeth and I literally <laughs> have to pull up from the depths of me. I don't anything I can to hold on to, to say, keep going up the hill because I want to turn around. Like everything in me wants to turn around. And the thing that keeps me going is encouragement from myself and others like Jisa, my friend, even though I want to strangle her when she's doing it. And um, a deep well of resolve that I don't know where it comes from. Like it is, it is, it's like when people talk about marathon running and they're like, I, I don't know that something kicks in and I, and I have this, it's this courage to just keep going. It is, ex- grit is excruciating. It is not like, you know, oh, just give it a try. It is like, um, it sound, and I've obviously never, I mean, I've never given birth. So, but like that is grit to me when it sounds like when you're three quarters of the way pushing a baby out and you just want to die, but you, but you keep going because you have, that's where grit to me, that's comes into play. You know, it's a more physiological thing that I think people realize. Yes, I agree with you. And also I think it is, not so much taught like explicitly taught behavior as it is people pick it up when other people are modeling it for them. Mostly I was talking to somebody recently who said, you know, I'm just not a soldier. Like this is one of my problems in life is I'm not, I'm not a soldier. And I thought about it and I thought, okay, well I am a soldier. I mean, I will just, I will keep going on, which is not, and it's not always great, No, but it just, that is, it doesn't occur to me a lot of the time to not do something. I don't really question in the way that I feel like my kids, for example, question, why do I have to do that? Or, you know, in fact, just as a side note, I recently started saying like, you know what, I don't have to give you a reason because I've gotten stuck in this thing of like rationalizing every decision because they, they, I've shaped that behavior in them. They say, why, why, why why do I have to do that? Um, So if you're, if people in your life don't model grit for you, mm-hmm. they don't model sticking things through to the end, having a cura- adopting a courageous attitude, um, and then strength of character. I don't know. I don't. It's I don't see a ton of it. I feel like represented just in our culture, and but or when it is, it's talked about in this like American. um, it's a real sort of white dude john wayne kind of strength it's a hundred percent that's what it is it's the john wayne it's the it's the clint eastwood thing and sure i mean those people are and were probably gritty but that's 
and maybe also because it all it often gets portrayed as like a male thing mm-hmm. but really a cowboy every, a cowboy yeah yes it's mm-hmm. the cowboy thing and i really think that uh we all could benefit from having a little bit more in the way of especially the courage and the strength of character part agreed 100 percent. and it's interesting when i think of grit i think of like sandpaper you know and mm-hmm. so it 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 can it can create it it shapes you right so yeah. grit being being gritty and being and be having strength of character really shapes us and i agree that we don't see models of it other than white dudes you know uh going to war you know like mm-hmm. that that doesn't there's that's not a model i had that model of my mom but it was it it, it was so she had it, hers turned into workaholism Mm-hmm. And this idea of and resentment projects, resentment projects. And, <laughs> and, and I was going to say resentment projects. I was going to say, um, it turned into like, um, yeah, bootstrap mentality and an immigrant and you have to do everything yourself. So I, I think again, you know, for me, it comes down to balance. It's like, I don't know, like we were talking about canceling plans, but like, I don't, I used to be really bad at knowing like, when is an actual good reason to not go to work? Because I'd be sick and I'd go to work or I'd be mm-hmm. sick and I'd whatever. And then the other side of me was like, well, I'm just going to cancel. I'm just going to cancel. But um, it's balance of like, no, 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 this is actually uh grit means staying home right now. Sure, sure. Because sometimes that is what it means. But I I never learn when, like when. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring Mm -hmm. that out, like checking in. Okay, is the strength of character thing to do here? Show up for this thing. I don't want to show up, i.e. the doctor to get my blood pressure checked and my weight checked. Or that's the that is or is the right thing to do. You know, this is this, you know, if it's something really not in not feeling right. And it's not because of fear that I'm not going or like, you know, or what's the self-care thing to do? And I, and I, I struggle with knowing what the self-care thing to do is, but I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it at 45. I'm getting better at saying, no, no, the true grit thing here to do is actually stay home. But it's real hard. It's real tricky because you have people telling you, 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 you know, there's messages, like you said, um, like the do culture, the, the doing Mm -hmm. bootstrap culture will Mm -hmm. tell you just true grit is going to work sick. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think for my own personal sense of grit, if if I asked, I I think the, the money for me is more in like figuring out the thing that I'm not being courageous about Mm. because that's something, you know, I, I encounter that with conflict a lot. Like, I mean, I, I'm in a lot of positions in life that force me to embrace conflict. And I guess that's been a good thing, but my default setting is still to, you know, not want want to avoid conflict, want to kind of shrink into the background. And oftentimes that's because of, I mean, one of the main things that the Black Lives Matter movement has exposed for me personally is my lack of courage when it has come to participating in white supremacist culture, mm-hmm. um, which usually for me ends up being like not saying anything when things are said that I know are wrong. That's pretty much the way that I feel like it's happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I, you know, it was interesting. I, I think that that is so it's so weird. It goes back to the theater school. One time Peyton and I were visiting a theater school friends, parents, and they started to say really, 
anti-Latinx stuff, anti, and no one said anything. And, and then Peyton, and I could say his name because it's the truth. Um, Peyton said to me, why didn't you say anything? As if it was my job only, he's like, that's uh-huh. your culture. Why didn't you stick up? And I, and, and I just felt ashamed. But now I'm thinking, why didn't you say anything? You a a Absolutely. Because that's another part of the white supremacist culture is like, Fair, always ferreting out the emotional labor to the person who's being oppressed. <laughs> it was so weird. Now I'm like, you, you, and now I want to like have him on the podcast just to confront him about this. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know how that would go. But, but, the, the, but it, it is exposed in me too. Like I do this, I do the same thing. So it, even in situations where I'm not the one being targeted, I, yeah. I, sh- I need to say things and, you know, what, yeah, I totally get by what you're saying. I grit, true grit. What is true grit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, can we just follow up? To, what was your process like? We, last time we talked, I just wanted to follow up on the, the the you had received an email and you worked with yourself and you responded to oh, that email. Yes. Yeah. So I yes I and it the result was that the person didn't respond to me after that, which I think is actually a good sign because there wasn't anything to say like to refute what I was saying. I kind of you know sometimes you can really dead an issue by just being like very matter of fact and unemotional. That's, ah. that's that's sort of a key for me is like if I try to go back over, over something and take the emotion, you know, what is like my intention and in, in my emotion and I just try to make it like, because what I ended up saying to this person is, I am setting a boundary with you. You don't like the boundary I am setting. That's okay. I'm still going to set the boundary because it's not only you I have to think of. It's other it's people. Part, it's part of a bigger picture. Oh, that's some good stuff right there. That's some true grit. I think that's some true grit. You know, one of the best DBT techniques is called broken record. And it's just exactly what it sounds like when you set a boundary with somebody and then they say, but, 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 but you just say, I am setting a boundary with you. I am setting a boundary with you. This is still an example of a boundary I'm setting. Yes, I see you don't like the boundary I'm setting. I mean, broken record because sometimes people don't hear it until you've said it 5,000 times. That is fantastic. You know what I need to do? Say it to myself, set the boundary like this. I want to go to McDonald's and and I haven't, but I say it frequently. And then I have to say, I'm setting a boundary with you self. We're not going. I know you, you think you want to go. I hear that you want to go. We're not going. So then that's, that's something I'm going to try to do with myself. Broken record. Broken record. Yeah. Like it's just it's it, this is it there's not you're not no matter because i feel like where those things fall apart is in the, the re, when when people and i like the example i gave with my kids like when we're talking through the reason it's like, of it it's, it's like no, no no you don't we don't really even have to go there it's just this this is just the boundary that's just it that's all you need to know about it oh that's so great that is so great. I'm going to try it with myself first and see how it goes. And then I'm going to try it with others and see how that goes. I don't really have to. It's interesting. I think I haven't been in a situation, especially pandemic wise. And since I don't have like a job job where I've had to practice that that much, but I'm sure they're coming. I'm sure because it's life. That's it's right. Coming. <laughs> it's coming. And so may you too, dear listeners, know the power of I don't have to give you a reason. Yes. 
Today on the podcast, we're talking with PJ Powers. PJ was an acting uh, major at DePaul University at the theater school. He graduated and he went on to co-found Timeline Theater Company in 1997, which is an amazing theater company in Chicago. And he became the artistic director there in 1999, where he still is the artistic director. It's quite an amazing feat. He's quite an amazing guy. Let's enjoy our conversation with PJ Powers. It's PJ Power. What's happening? How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Nice it's to see great you. To see you I too. just realized you look like Ira Glass. <laughs> you know what's funny? I was I was asked at a Starbucks once if I was Ira Glass. When I was like the the, the barista was like, "Are you Ira Glass?" I said, "Yes, I am." You're yeah. actually, I would say you're better looking. <laughs> yeah, past, you but. are. <laughs> uh, well, that's very generous. Thank you. Hi, PJ Powers. Congratulations. You survived Woo-hoo! theater school. And I was just looking at your resume and God damn, did you yeah. survive theater school? Like you have done a lot since you graduated, including co-founding a theater company, receiving all types of awards. Jeff citations here and there coming out the wazoo. I mean, my God, have you always been this driven? Uh, well, first <laughs> of all, uh, thank you. That's that's uh, overly generous. Uh, I don't I don't know if I've always been this driven. I, I mean, if you had told me any single day during my four years at the theater school, uh, hey, dude, someday you'll start a theater company and then you'll be an artistic director. I I mean, I would have laughed you out of the room. It was it was so not even in the realm of of ideas that 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 I had. So uh I don't know. I mean I I I like to say I sort of lucked into my dream job that I never knew was my dream job. Um mm. and 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 it happened kind of unexpectedly a, a couple years after getting out of school. Yeah. So when you when you got together with that group of people which is Nick Bowling and um Juliet Hart. Who else? Juliet Hart did was were you just going to do the one play or did were you trying to start a theater company? Uh the well beginning? Nick was trying to start a theater company. Uh, I I most definitely was not. Uh, I was I was uh, the the naysayer at at first. So it he was he was the grand visionary. Yeah, he he tells the story about meeting in the basement or someone's of, garden apartment or something. Susan yeah. Lee Susan oh, Lee yes. Basement. I like right. what the fuck? Why, why were we in Susan Lee's <laughs> basement? But it was like, hey, I, I I got this room for free. Um, oh, and it was Lily or somebody who told him the world doesn't need that. Is true. Yeah, L- gonna, Lily yeah, was like, okay. I want no part of this, dude. Uh, so <laughs> she like she like planted a little seed in Nick's head of uh, you know you should actually have a mission before you start a theater company. And Nick was like, oh right, let me work on that. Uh, but he he pulled us together. This was in uh, spring of of nineteen ninety seven. Uh, so yeah, just actually two weeks ago today, we celebrated our twenty fourth birthday. Um, wow! Nuts! Thank you. Nuts! That's awesome. So he he pulled us together late at night. I I remember I I went to see a show before I like ushered for a show at Steppenwolf that night, and then I was like, oh, I gotta go to some like late night meeting with bowling. I don't know what this is about and showed up uh, late at night and he like laid out this grand vision of, I think we should start a, a theater company. And, 
And I was the one who kind of peed in the punch bowl that night because he also said, and I think we should focus on exploring history. That's, that's what our theater company should be. And I said like that, that sounds kind of, kind of <laughs> awful. Um, I, I don't know that I even want to attend that theater, let alone run it. Um, so, so I, I was kind of the stick in the mud, but um, wiser heads prevailed that night. And, and, and we started to talk about like, well, what does it mean to have a theater company that explores history? Like, is there a way that that isn't lame and dusty? And, um, <laughs> dusty. um and so we, we had a, a great conversation that night. And at the end of the night, we all like had some assignment, some, some to do. And, you know, remember this is 1997. Like, I think maybe I had just gotten an email address. Maybe, maybe. So like to yeah, even right. schedule a meeting was, a, oh. a thing. Um, so my, my assignment was schedule our second meeting. <laughs> a couple of weeks went by. I was not scheduling any meetings um, because I was, I, you know, I was two years out of school. I was on a path to be an actor, which is kind of why you go to a BFA acting conservatory. Um, and I was starting to get some work. You know, I was not blazing a path to stardom by any means but i was you know working at some of the off-loop theaters that i had really admired um and i thought all right i need to stay on this path at the same time i was working at theaters that i'd really admired and then once i got behind the curtain i was like this place is a hot mess like what is who's in charge here it's, what what are yeah. these decisions being made? our decisions being made so i was kind of you know internally grappling with that but i did not think well all right, buddy, then you do it better. Um, so to two weeks. Yeah, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go. Oh, no, I was just going to ask. I, I just wanted to know, like, um, that initial meeting that you all had, what made you not say no? What made you say, I'll keep going with this? I don't know if you've met Nick Bowling, but he doesn't take no <laughs> as an answer. That's true. Good point. Good you point. Know, I have been, you know, yes, in a room with I Nick mean, Bowling. I've been working mm -hmm. with this guy now for God, 27 years, 27 years. I, I can't, I can't, can't quit you. Um, and uh, so, you know, he was persuasive and, and I, I, I loved this group of people and I, and I remembered like, oh okay. yeah, we, we did something together at school two years ago and it was kind of magical. And I'm, and I'm missing yeah. that collaboration in my solo work. I feel I do have to push back on this idea that you weren't always driven, though, because I, I mean, like my recollection of you was Mr. Go, go, go. Like I, I did I, not Mr. Laid back, like smoke a joint. <laughs> let's see what happens where we just let the night unfurl. That wasn't like, me. You always seem like a, no, you just always seem like a person who had a plan of action and like I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and like you're not wasting any time. So maybe maybe it didn't feel to you like it, you were super ambitious. Well, you weren't ambitious to start a theater company before you did, but you you seem like you have always been um highly motivated. Well, that's, that's very kind. I you know, I do have one strange memory and I've 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 heard other people on this podcast talk about like those brutal questions that Jim O would like, you know, pose, pose to us, like just before graduation, like, you know, the big life questions, like, all right, what do you actually want to do now? Like you, you've got, you've got your degree, what you going to do? Um, and I remember being like, just 
gobsmacked by those questions. Like, I, I don't know. What, what does success look like? But I have this faint memory that one of the questions was, you know, what, what's something that you think nobody knows or that you don't know about yourself? Something like that. You know, what's, what's some characteristic of yours that, that most people don't know? And I remember answering it. I think I could be a leader of something, but I've never had the chance. Um, and I, you know, in my, my infinite 21 year old wisdom, like there, there was some little part of me that thought like, okay, I I think I can, I think I want to do something more than what I'm doing. So, but prior to all of this, you were set to be an actor. Did you do acting? Yeah, I I started when I was like five. So I, I did it. I did it a lot. Uh, as, as a kid, I started doing some like professional children's theater as, as a teenager. So yeah, I was doing, uh, a ton. Ironically, though, I had no thought of going to a conservatory. I, I came to Chicago to tour Loyola, where my sister had gone to school. And and one of my teachers, um, through a, a, I did a summer theater program called Cherubs at, at Northwestern. Um, you know, it's for, it's for kids going into their senior year of high school. And, and one of the teachers at Cherubs said, you should look at DePaul. I think that's a program. And I was like, I'm not going to a conservatory. Um, I thought like I need a liberal arts degree, even though I'd been acting. So I came to look at Loyola. It sort of didn't flip my skirt. And then I was like, all right, I'll begrudgingly go look at DePaul and, and walked out of that building like two hours later. And my dad turned to me and he said, this is where you're going to school. Right. And I said, yep. And I did. And I auditioned like in December, I got in and it was like done. Wait, I never did a tour. Did you do a tour specifically just of the theater? So it was kind of, uh, it it was a bit of an ordeal. Like we had an appointment to meet with, I guess, Melissa, Melissa Meltzer, who's director of admissions at the time. So we like showed up and, and we're like standing, you know, inside the entryway at Kenmore and like nobody is there and no one's greeting us. And and we're kind of like, did we screw something up? And so there was a lot of like weird looks between people and finally someone was like uh yeah melissa's not here today um i think she's out sick um let me see if we can get someone else to talk to you so they went and found john bridges (laughs) oh yeah and so me me and my parents like sat in bridges office for two hours and john bridges sold me on the theater school like oh my gosh wow wait the whole time you were just sitting in his office and that's what made you leave and say, I'm going to this theater school. And okay, Insane. John, I see Insane. you, John. Very yeah, John, nice. <laughs> not telling us what's, yeah, that's how he worked Insane. his the hidden hand. Of John I don't even Bridges know if he right ever there. knew that. But when, when he was finally retiring, I like wrote him a letter saying like, you're kind of the reason that my life ended up the way my life ended up. So it was truly that meeting, that yeah. sitting in there that, that changed you from, I don't want to go to conservatory to this. You know, there was my, something my about life. that that dumpy old building on Kenmore that just seemed kind of exotic and attractive. And and I was like, I think these are my people. I, I, I don't Mm -hmm. need like fancy glitzy buildings and and programs. I was like, there's something that just feels authentic about this place. And I, and I loved Chicago. I grew up just outside Detroit. So I'm, you know, I'm Midwestern boy. Um, So it, it just felt, it felt right. And what's funny is, so that that weird experience I had standing in the lobby of like, mm, there's no one actually here for me happened again when I came back to audition because like I flew into town by myself. I'm like, thanks, mom and dad. I just just, you know, good luck. Get on a plane. 
um, and, to, <laughs> and took a cab to the theater school like on a Friday and the audition was Saturday morning. And they were supposed to have a student host me for the night. Um, oh, like yeah, yeah, or, or in, yeah. in their, their apartment or something. And so it was December. So, you know, people were on break. So there's not many people around the building. So again, I showed up and they're like, oh, yeah, we dropped the ball. There's no one to host. Me. <laughs> so I'm 18 years old. I'm in Chicago and I'm like, okay, where do I stay? Pull up a mat in room 403. And, yeah, and right. so they just started like walking around the, the lounge there. And they're like, hey, is anybody willing to have this dude crash on your couch? And so... Uh, her, <laughs> Jess, That's Jessica something. I'm forgetting her her last name. Hannah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, she, she was like, "Yeah, I'll take you." So she she took me to dinner at Salt and Pepper, and I like crashed oh, on her couch yes. and auditioned the next day. Okay, thank you, Jess. I see you too. You're you're pointing out all these fabulous people who have already been on our podcast. Yes. So oh, go back I and haven't to the previous episodes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jess was on it. Um, okay, so did, you came from Michigan. Did you apply to any other schools? Um, I think I still did apply to Loyola, but but no, I was like laser focused. I mean, DePaul's the only place I auditioned, it's the only conservatory I considered. I think I had like maybe a fallback small liberal arts school or something, but I, I wasn't ever. But did somebody show up to watch you audition? <laughs> yes, there, there there were people there. I have. I have like close to no memory of that day. I, I remember sitting at Salt and Pepper um, the night before, just like staring out the window at at the L tracks on on Lincoln, yep. and just mm-hmm. thinking, this place feels so exotic. Um, uh, but I have no memory of the actual audition. You don't know what you did. You have no memory of your monologue. Zilch. Okay. Zippo. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't either. Well, I, I remember I the, the I remember the like atmosphere and the environment the the people but I don't remember what I did. I it just was remember- in the large movement room. That's that's yes. what I, I remember. And I was uh, like, yeah. this room smells like wet socks. Um, <laughs> yes, <it did. laughs> and 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 you didn't know that that was just the bottom. You didn't know where that room could go no, to. I yeah. didn't know the type of inappropriate touching that would ensue for the next four years in that room. That sort of. Things that today would just never, Not ever, no. ever be allowed. So that was going to be my next question. I mean, did you find the whole thing like much more touchy-feely, uh, um, just odd, odd than you expected it to be? Um, I guess not because I had done the chair program, which was all sorts of touchy-feely um, you know, it it kind of it's a intense like five week sort of mini conservatory where, you know, from nine a.m. till ten p.m. you're doing classes and then you're rehearsing at night. I mean, it, it really is sort of a mini version, which I think is why um, one of my teachers there said, "Hey, you seem into this. I, I I know a program, you know, cross town that that does this." So, and I think because I had done so much theater in in Detroit, it it felt it felt natural. However, the big difference was once I got to DePaul, I was like, oh, I feel like I also found my people. Like I, I, I was used to sort of the, the work, but never felt like I had the right people surrounding me. But at DePaul, I don't know. I, I, I found some of them. And 27 years later, I'm still, You're still with them. I'm still attached at the hip to some of them. So tell us about the life of an artistic director. I mean, I, I don't know 
I think people who are who have been part of starting theater companies know about it, but I don't think the greater population knows about the work that goes into being an artistic director. So tell us about your job there. It's totally glamorous. Um, <laughs> you make tons of money. Tons, tons, of, money. tons of dough. Everyone loves me. No one questions uh, me. I yeah. just, you know, sit around swirling bourbon and in my ascot all day. Oh. You know, throwing scripts against the wall that I think yes. are, are, are no, no, no. Um, well, I, I guess I'll start by saying, and it took me a long time to figure this out because I, I then, so 1997 we tried we we started the theater company, but then I didn't become artistic director until 99, after Nick had a job opportunity that he you know couldn't refuse, and so I I sort of stepped into the role not knowing what it was. And uh, so, you know, I was 26 years old, you know, we had, we had a, a budget of like, you know, $12. Yeah. Uh, and so it took me a while to figure out not only what is the job of the artistic director, but more importantly, what, what is my version of being an artistic director? And, mm-hmm. and I say that because I have an acting background. I'm not a director still to this day. I've, I've never directed a play which most yeah. most artistic directors like that's their thing and and most of their companies are sort of defined by their directing imprint if you will mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i've always come at the job more as a producer from an acting background so it it took me mm-hmm. a, a while to to be cool with that in my own skin of uh, and Martha Levy at Steppenwolf was a big influence on me because she similarly, you know, wasn't a director. She was an actor and a, and a, and a producer and um, and a, a mentor to me in, in many, many ways. But to, to your question, like, what's what's a day in the life like? Um, I guess I'll talk pre-pandemic because day in the life now is just not so. Um, what I what I love about the job, why, why I do say that it's my dream job that I didn't know would be my dream job is that no two days are the same and, and no two hours in a day are the same. So, you know, I could be working on casting one minute and then I'm working on a fundraiser the next minute. And then I'm collaborating on some marketing thing or having to deal with some crappy HR problem or, you know, I'm, I'm out of my league on a daily basis in Mm. some form or fashion. And that's what's exciting because each day I'm like, wow, never been faced with this. All right, got to figure it out. And then a week later, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I figured that out. What's what's, what's the the next hurdle? So the things that were totally daunting 10 years ago now are like, oh, if only. (laughs) I, I, I can knock that out. So I love it because I'm just constantly learning. Do you think that the the longevity of the theater company has something to do with that ability, the way that it sounds like you solve problems? Like you're not, uh, or I guess the question is, how have you lasted so long? Hmm. I mean, that's my first question. I know a lot of people are going to be like, 25, what? Usually it's one year. And yeah. so- how, what, why, why have you lasted so long as a company and why have you lasted so long as an artistic director? Do you think? Um, those are good questions. I, I think a couple of our secrets to endurance, if not success, um, 
for starters, we, we've always been a really collaborative body. And from the outset, and this is something that, that Nick laid out on April 9th, 1997, he, he was like, let's, let's do something different from the norm in Chicago, which is like creating ensemble based companies. Uh, and, you know, Steppenwolf is obviously sort of like the, the Uber model of that of, Oh, let's have a group of artists and do plays that feature these, these artists, which is great. And they've got some pretty great artists. Uh, Nick said, let's do something different. Let's create uh, like an artistic board, if you will. Let's let's have our company members be a collaborative body to set the artistic course. And let's have a mission be our, our, our roadmap. So what that means more specifically, still to this day, me as artistic director, I'm not choosing the plays we, we produce. Uh, it, it is a democratic process. There are 17 company members now. And it's my job to lead us in discussion and decision-making. But I, I promise you, there have been countless projects that I'm super excited about that the others just aren't on board with. And you, you're not going to see those on, on our stage. So having having that system of checks and balances, um, and we don't pick plays just to feature each each other. And sometimes that's really hard and, and painful. But you know, we don't get in a room and say, like, all right, here's a project for you and here's a project for you. Um, we say, you know, what are the stories we want to tell? How are we oh, serving I our love mission? That. Dude, um, that's that's it. That's the special sauce. Cause I feel like the, the reason, as Boz is saying, like that most theater companies go fold quickly is because it's all these vanity projects that people are like, well now I finally have my thing. I can but that doesn't mean other people are going to want to watch it. And right. I, I, I love that you call it a vanity project because because pre-starting timeline, Nick and I actually produced a vanity project in, in 1996. So a year after I got out of school, he and I just wanted to work together again. So we like self-produced a play, um, a play called The Subject Was Roses that had no reason to be done other than I wanted to play this part and Nick wanted to to direct. And guess what? Nobody came and nobody cared. And so, well, right. yeah, we, we learned like, okay, this didn't really have a purpose other than we think, we think the world needs to see our talent. Right. Guess and what? I, it's they so didn't. tempting to do that. It's so tempting to do that because I feel like in this, um, in this industry in, that people are told, you can't do this. I'm going to choose what you do. So then when you have the chance, you're like, no, no, now I'm going to show them. The problem with that is it doesn't like, like, and Gina's always talking about this is when you don't invite other people into the process, it becomes such an insular thing and nobody really cares except the pe two people involved. It's, it's, it's ab absolutely true. And, and that idea is ultimately what made me relent and say, say yes to, to Nick in 1997. So, so yeah, so we, we had our first meeting. I was supposed to schedule the second meeting. I didn't. A couple of weeks went by. Nick and I went to see a show together and we were sitting at Moody's pub, uh, in, in Edgewater. And, and he finally said, um, Hey, you ever going to schedule that meeting? And, and I was like, okay, here comes the breakup conversation. And I said, you know, I, I just don't think this is for me. I, I'm so inspired by your vision, but I, I just don't, I don't see it. And he, he just, convinced me that night and 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 he was talking in these big lofty terms that I can't believe my 24 year old self 
cared about. But, you know, he said, most artists by nature, you know, since we're guns for hire, have to think just about our own solo career. He said, what if we built a company and and it became our legacy and and making something that outlived us became the thing that really drove us and became our 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 purpose um and i don't know why that sounded appealing but it did and i thought okay i can get on board with that and i think it sounded appealing because i was already feeling frustrated in the life of an actor uh in you know i am waiting for someone to call me and I, I'm the type of person, and Gina, maybe maybe you saw this in me before I did. <laughs> I, I'm the type of person who just needs to get up every day and have some goals and have a to do list. And I'm I'm truly flattered that you sense that about me well before I, I did. And the life of the actor is, you know, yes, there are things you can be doing every day to advance your career and hone your skills. But at the end of the day. If your phone rings, you you have you have the ability to exercise that. If the phone doesn't, you don't. And and so I right. thought I I, I want to be more in control of what I'm doing. Well, it also sounds you know the life of an actor or a solo whatever is so lonely, and it sounds like what you guys created was a real community. And, and that is appealing because we all want community and this idea of leaving a legacy that has nothing to, that is um, a community legacy versus a one person stardom legacy mm. is like a different thing. It feels to me from the outside looking in, it just seems uh, like comforting and, and being a solo actor is so lonely and waiting. And this was like, you had a family. That's the word. Yeah. It's like a family. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I mean, especially this past year where we all are feeling so isolated and so like, okay, I'll shuffle down the hall at home again, <laughs> check my email. Um, but, but I feel fortunate that I, I, I've had plenty to do this past year of like, okay, how, how do we keep this organization alive? How, mm-hmm. how do we live to fight another day post-pandemic when so many of my friends who, who are just freelance artists haven't known what their daily to-do is? And it's just heartbreaking because the depth of talent and, and skill that doesn't have an outlet. You know, many people have have hustled and created new outlets for for themselves. But but uh, I feel fortunate. I mean, believe me, there were days that I wish there was less on on our plate to survive a, a pandemic. But I feel fortunate that I've had stuff to keep pushing. So I know that there's at least a couple of books out there about you know starting a theater company, how to start a theater company. But I just had this vision that you're going to write a book <laughs> about um, starting a theater company and and using as the premise of the book, because it's been the premise of, of your company, to think 
almost exclusively, at least at the beginning, about the message or the intention of what you're trying to do, because that is the thing that's universal. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that's sustainable and long lasting. And the thing that's not sustainable, that we all get caught up in is the thing that you just mentioned, like, everybody has to see my, everybody is going to be so amazed by my talent. Okay, but so then the other thing that I'm thinking of is how, in addition to the pandemic, the entire theater world changed in, in yeah. this last year yeah. with the We See You White American Theater Movement. And you don't have to answer this question or we can cut it out later if you don't like like it. But um, what is, I mean, how are you responding to that? How How is a theater company responding to that side of things? No, it's a great question. And and you shouldn't cut it out because I, I, I should have to answer that. And I should be okay. able to to answer that. Um, uh, it's... It, it's a complicated question, but you know, when we talk about 24 years of this company, I, we will be the first to admit that at least the first half of that existence, we were way too homogenous and, and insular. And you can see that in, in just the makeup of that group of company members and the makeup of staff. Once we actually had staff and you can see it in the body of work, you know, it's, it's a lot of white dude plays. Um, and we have been a work in progress, I would say the, the latter half of our, our 24 years and making more progress in the past five to to eight years in expanding those voices and welcoming more voices into that decision-making group, uh, of, of company members. Um, and you know, it's, like I said, it's 17 people now and with a variety of ages and points of view and races, um, uh, we still got plenty of weight to go. Um, and similarly the work on our stage, um, is where it, where it has, has to start. Like you're, you're deluding yourself if you think, oh yeah, we can have a diverse board and a diverse audience if if the art that you're making isn't speaking to and from a variety of, of voices, like why do you think that a variety of voices are going to show up to to see it? So, so starting with the with the art um, has been, you know, more a more urgent focus for us um, in in the past five years. But but it's also about and and I I think long and hard about this my role as a leader of this organization I, I don't say the leader because we're just not set up that way um but i i think long and hard about you know how do i make space for other leaders and how do i how do i give the next 24 year old who doesn't know that they're ready to be an artistic director um a platform to find their own leadership voice. So it, that to say that that has weighed on me a lot this past year is is a supreme understatement. At the same time, like I'm I'm 47 years old, I still got some tread on the tires. I still got some stuff I want to to achieve and I want to get this baby timeline, you know, to a place that I I know it it will sustain itself, you know, beyond my involvement. Wow. I, I'm just so, um, 
it's just a theme that's been coming up in my life, which is long game. Let's look at the yeah, long game. That's my favorite word. Okay, we're in the we're in this together because I it's my new favorite word, and it's like, what's the long game here? Because I feel like, and and Gina and I were talking this morning about um, the instantaneousness um, of internet, and uh, and but I have to keep coming back to what's the long game, and it sounds like the other thing that makes timeline really work is the long game. Hmm. Like you, you have a long game kind of a mission situation versus a short term. And I know you, everyone needs short term goals, but I'm just impressed with the, with the long game kind of um, focus that you have. And I'm wondering, like, I just am wondering where that comes from. Did you, as a kid, were you like, I'm looking at the long game of life <laughs> or like, it's probably, maybe it's, maybe it's being with these people for so long and it evolves and changes. Right. Yeah. You know, I, God, I love that observation. And I, I truly do. I use the phrase long game all the time. And I think that has been our MO. I don't, I honestly don't know where it, it came from. And and Gina, to your point, I, I didn't read any of those books on how to start or run a theater company, which is the other crazy thing. And, you know, we all know we didn't have a single class in four years that was like, here's how you budget. Here's how no. you fundraise. Here's how you market. No. Here's how you produce. Uh, <laughs> no. Here's what HR looks like. Uh, oh. You know, like I didn't train a day in my life for what dominates my, my job at the same time. Yeah, I trained every day of my life to to be a, a, a theater artist and have taste and sensibility and and um, just know what the theater world is like. But it's been a lot of um, learning on the fly, a lot of trial and error. But I would say the, the the other secret sauce that we have had is that we've always been really honest with each other about what we're doing well and where we have to do better. Um, and this comes back to a lot of discussions in the past year with we see you, et, et cetera, is like, okay. And it's why I said like, no, don't cut this out. Like I, I, I need to talk about where we're falling short and I need to be held accountable for that. And, and, and that was instilled early on. Um, and I don't take credit for it. And I don't know who should, who had the, the idea of, Hey, let's, let's operate like adults. But even our very first show that we did, we had a six hour postmortem after closing that show where we're like, we are going to analyze every motherfucking detail of like, okay, now let's criticize the postcard and let's criticize the, the dip we served at opening night. And, um, and while now, thankfully our postmortems are a little bit, more expedient than six hours. What it did is it just established a culture where we're like, okay, we're not going to pretend that we fucked this up. And, and that may hurt someone's feelings to say it out loud. We're not going to say it out loud because we're trying to point fingers or be malicious. We're just trying to be constructive and say like, we're going to fall in a lot of holes. Let's just not keep falling in the same hole. Yeah. And the only way to not fall in the same hole is to say, that was a hole and and we did a face plant there. Yeah. Well, so I wish I had said this to Nick because I think I was thinking it when we were talking. So hopefully he'll listen to this. But um Well, I of course have a Zoom with him in like an hour, so I can okay, tell him. So you'll you know, tell him. Because I still can't shake that guy. I mean, honestly, when I walked in 
to a Nick Bowling production, it's like, I can't believe you did this to a classroom. I can't <laughs> believe I feel like I'm in the middle of the most opulent. Like he, he really has such vision. He really has. And I, I'm, I'm thinking he maybe after that conversation that he had with Lily really developed what his big picture. I mean, he's essentially his approach to, you know, creating this company is probably akin to, his, his approach to filling a second floor classroom with four inches of water and then putting Insane. two naked people in it. I mean, the guy thinks Insane. big. The guy thinks big. So, so let's get to the fun stuff about theater school. Mm. Your, your experiences, your, your um, professors that you gelled with, the ones that you didn't like. What, what what give us give us some some juicy tidbits. So this is where I like list all the professors I slept with in college. Yes, college. yes, so, yes. That so 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 did not happen. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I I I I look back on my time at school with with great fondness. That said, I I was kind of an unremarkable student, and I I don't I don't I don't say that to to like be a martyr at, at all like they kind of didn't know what to do with me and I don't fault them for that like I was just coming into my own and I think when I listened to, to Nick's podcast I, I think there was some joking uh, about that of like oh yeah I was I was like a boy trying to find um so so I you know I I was like the king of the crappy workshop um uh it was some really just questionable productions in, 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 in classrooms. Um, but there were some, some teachers who, who made just a lasting imprint. You know, Bill Brown is now one of my dearest friends and, and collaborators and, and like get to hire him at, at our, our theater. And he's an associate artist of, of our, our theater. And, and yet when he was my teacher, you know, I, I just revered him. Um, so, you know, people like Bill and David Avocali and Don Ilko and and Jim O, like they they had uh, they had lasting Im imprints on me, and and also you know traumatized me, <laughs> which is you know par for the course. And and you guys have explored, uh, you know, often some of those uh, challenging relationships, um, shall we say? But. But what was great about the theater school is it was kind of like a buffet and you could take what you wanted and leave behind what wasn't speaking to you. Um, and in a course of a day, you know, you could have five different, different teachers with very different styles and, and maybe three of those you're like, okay, that's just not speaking to me, but but then you you find some of the things that that do speak to you and you hold on to them. What did you um, love about Bill? Like, what are the mm. things that what drew you to the teachers that you loved? What were the quality? You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, with 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 Bill, some of it also came from the fact that I had seen him on stage while I was at school, and um, again, I don't know what pushed me to do this, but. During my four years at school, I was going out and seeing a ton of theater. I would say like half of my education was seeing Chicago theater. And 
my good pal Kevin Fox was kind of the driver of that. He was, you know, the hustler and bargain hunter. And he'd be like, hey, we're, we're going to usher tonight at, at Steppenwolf. And then, I, you know, I, I got his comps to a preview at, at this theater and this theater. So I was going out seeing a, a lot. And that that was informing what I, I wanted to do. And so Bill was someone that, like, I was seeing in shows around town. So then when I actually got to be in a classroom with him, and he was kind of the first one to bridge academia with professional life because he was doing it. You know, we'd sit in his classroom at 11 a.m. talking to him and then he'd be on stage at court, you know, that night. Um, so that was just eye opening to. He was like one of the only people doing that. He right? was, because... was kind of it. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the school is okay. very, very, very different now. Um, very different, but, um, but he, he was, he was the only one doing that. So that, that was kind of, um, eye opening and, and inspiring of like, oh, I want, I want your life. So even that was kind of ambitious because like, you're going to usher and at the, at Steppenwolf and see, see plays at the court. Like while I was pulling bongs in somebody's <laughs> like disgusting apartment living room and i it, which is not to say that I, I i needed to do that for my you know for for different reasons i, sure. I it's not, everything is everything and i wouldn't change anything but at the same time like so there's so many epochs of my life where i look back and i think i wish i had just grabbed the bull by the horns a little yeah. bit more i wish i had had kind of like because it really honestly to make your living in a theater you have to wake up, at, like you say, wake up every day with a list of things to do. Wake up every day prepared to take the world by storm because it is so much effort for really, I mean, I, we say it jokingly, but really like people who work in theater, even on Broadway, they don't make enough money, like really yeah. to, to live on. So you, so if you're going to do it, you've got to have a very like structured approach to it, which I think. Well, it's, thank you, but it it's, it's my number one piece of advice that I give to students now. And, you know, I have the privilege of getting to come in and talk to, to acting students. Now I say, don't squander these four years. Like you are sitting in a gold mine of, of theater. And I know how all consuming the school can be and how overwhelming the schedule is. And it's, 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 it's brutal. I said, but, when you do have that rare night off, if you're not going out to see something, you're 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 going to just set yourself back once once it's time that you're out of school. Because once then you're out there auditioning, I promise you, the other ten people who all look like you sitting in the the waiting room to audition, they've seen five productions that director has done. They've they've seen a bunch of shows that that theater has done they they have a sense of of maybe what the the aesthetic is of that show and or the flip side of that <clears throat> is you may go see a lot of work at some theater or the work of a director and say i don't want to work there i don't want to work with that person that their work doesn't speak to me or i find it bad or uh you know off-putting um so you kind of got to be in, in the driver's seat at, as an actor of, of knowing the landscape. Mm, I did not. I knew the landscape of a Mickey's big mouth malt, malt, uh, malt liquor bottle. And then 
later on I tried to catch up, but I, I, that's fan. I, yeah, it, I have some regrets now about, and it was fine. I, I have regrets and yet I needed to do it. Yeah. To we do, also, like got, and, and believe me, I wasn't like as <laughs> nerdy as I'm coming across. I, I did plenty of really stupid yeah. shit like any college yeah. student. But I think it just speaks to, you know, that, that your crew that you were were hanging with were interested in expanding your brain about the theater arts in general. And it's no mistake that then you have a theater company that's lasted so long. I think, yeah. And how did you net? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, did you get warned and all that? Did you have the warning system going on when you were... Was that oh, a fear of yours? Oh God, the warning you... system. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I do remember this uh, a bit. Yes, I. Um, I recall <laughs> David Avcali saying to me. I guess this was my second year. He was my my first year acting teacher, and after he saw me in some intro in the second year, he said, "You know, I. We didn't have questions about bringing you back, but after seeing that play." I then did have questions of like, do you really belong here? It's like, wow, snap. Um, and I think you guys heard in, in um, an expose about, about Bella uh, that when I was in, in her class called Technique, um, I got a C my first, first quarter and my report card came home. My father called me and he said, what is Technique and why do you seem to not have any? Um, and so I had to go... <laughs> I had to go see Dr. Bella and, you know, you go into her dark office and, and you stare at her and then behind her head, she has all the pictures of incredibly famous people that, that she, she taught. And, you know, it's just, it's like, you're going to be with the, the Godfather's wife. Um, and, and she said like, you're just not progressing. Uh, and I was like, uh, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, you're not progressing. She goes, you don't have to stand on your head, just act. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty good piece of advice, which I, I carry with me to, to this day. And, uh, wow. Um, yeah, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just, just do your job. Just act. Yeah. It's, it's become, it's become like vernacular with me and my wife and she's not part of the theater world at all. But, you know, if we go see a play where there seems to be some overacting, shall we say, or poor acting, she, she'll walk out and be like, there's a lot of standing on your head going on. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Well, you're really just making me remember and realize like Chicago is really the theater place, like much more than New York, much more than any other place. It, and it's, and it stayed sort of steadfastly committed to some of those really like important. I mean, when I think of the things that drew me to theater to begin with, the innovation and the like very clear ensemble connection those are things that um i feel like chicago theater has really stayed with and why it's still so successful so who are the uh timeline contemporaries like who else has been besides double who else has been around for a couple decades and is Mm. uh, consistently producing good stuff um (laughs) oh yikes no (laughs) i i no i say that because um Sadly, so many of our contemporaries have have faded away or folded up or or had to totally reinvent them themselves. We've we've sort of joked that we feel like we're on a bit of an island of the 
the slow death of the midsize theater. Um, you know, there we have a city that has these amazing mega institutions of Goodman and Steppenwolf and Chicago Shakespeare and um, and and other really notable you know midsize theaters like Court and BG and 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 Northlight, but in my now dear God thirty years of being in Chicago, I can count on a few fingers the theaters that have grown from like small to to midsize. You know, Look Looking Glass did it, Writers Theater did it. And then it's hard, to, you know, Black Ensemble Theater did, but um, it's 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 hard to come up with that list. So I, I feel like we're kind of on an island. Like we're not that small, scrappy storefront anymore, but we're sure as heck not the Goodman by, you know, by about $20 million a year. We're not mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's, it's hard to, to look around and be like, oh, yeah, we're on the same path and trajectory as... You know, one time, one time it was like, oh yeah, next theater. Okay, they're not around anymore. Hypocrites. Okay, they're not around anymore. Um, so that's it's depressing. Yeah, that is depressing. And where is the where is the organization trying to go? I mean, you're you said you're trying to pave the way at some point in the future for a change in leadership to turn turn things over. But yeah, well, the thing that dominates most of my life these days is we're in the process of designing uh, a, a new home for, for timeline and, oh, that's awesome. and, and trying to raise $35 million to build a new home for timeline in, in uptown um, at, at Broadway and, and Argyle. So most of the pandemic when we're not producing plays, you know, I'm on zoom with our, our architects designing a theater and trying to do fundraising, which is an amazing privilege even just to get to spend time time doing that it's also a, a colossal challenge uh because you know p.s there was no capital campaign class uh in theater school <laughs> i was thinking i missed that with uh yeah. with you know john jenkins but I, while yeah. while phyllis was teaching us how to do back rubs of, of each other uh uh you know it's like and here's how to do a capital campaign as you're rubbing <laughs> For rubbing yes. the lower back of your classmate uh so so yeah so the 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 big um the big nugget that that we're we're trying to achieve and and we've been working on this for many many years is to get this this new home open and and ensure that that the foundation is laid for for timeline for uh, you know years to come how do you raise $35 million? I mean, I know you, 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 you go through the process that you've identified people who are stalwart supporters of you. You figure out who, who has deep pockets, but you have to also get like other organizational support, foundational support, right? So it's lots, lots of grant writing, that kind of this, thing. This is where uh, my favorite phrase, the long game comes back in, into play. And you, you, Short answer, and I, I, I'm not trying to be flip, is you don't do it overnight. Like you build relationships over 10, 20, 24 years. And, and you have people who, who believe in the organization, not because you had one great pitch meeting, but because they've known you for 15 years. And they're like, hey, I've seen 50 of your shows. And, and I've seen that when I've contributed in the past, you've put that to good use uh so it's it is all all long game 
which is really uh, frustrating when you're an impatient person like I am (laughs) (laughs) and want to see results. I feel like we haven't uh, talked very much about the ways in which you survived uh, your experience at the theater school. I'm Mm -hmm. gleaning that one of the ways was that you had great friends. You had good relationships with people, but what else? Um, The relationships were, were, were kind of key, you know, friendships I, I, I made there. I mentioned Kevin Fox and Siler Thomas and Amy Farrell and Leonard Roberts and, and Nick Bowling and, and Juliet Hart. Like those, those are, those are friends for, for life. And, that's what that's what kept me going and uh, and even though i was you know kind of on misfit island in in school without really finding my place i i did feel like like i was growing um and so that that is sort of what what kept me going um but you know when i got to school like i didn't know what it, was going to happen. You know, we were, we were the first class. So I graduated in 95. We were the first class you might recall who went to LA. Um, oh. yeah. So, um, so we were also the first class who didn't go to New York. Um, you know, prior to us, they would do a showcase in New York and, and with us, they're like, no more New York. And I was like, Oh, that sucks. And they're like, we're going to LA and Los Angeles had less than no interest in me. Um, and, and the feeling was, you know, kind of mutual. I didn't have any thoughts of, of going out there, but, but it's also a little, a little disappointing when you're like, great, I'm introducing myself to LA and there's not a single human who wants to meet me. Um, uh, so that's like, Oh, that's a little scary. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but you have to tell the price is right story. Yes. Yes. Sadly, my 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 only memory of going to Los Angeles <clears throat> to, to launch my acting career had nothing to do with acting. But uh, because no one had any interest in me in Los Angeles whatsoever, I, I had a few days of free time out there um, uh, yeah, because no one wanted to, to have, have a meeting. So someone I don't know who the ringleader was, but someone was like, hey, we're all going to go to The Price is Right. So there was, I don't know, 12, 15 of us um, who went, uh, and I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would get picked by the show to be on the show, but lo and behold, um, and you come know, on down. come on down, you know, and, and you have to like go through this just very, very quick, I can't even call it an, an interview, but, but sort of like this cattle call as you're walking in and the producers are like, what's your name? Where are you from? Um, and and I was like the tenth in line behind many of my classmates, so everybody was like, "I'm so and so. I'm from Chicago." So by the time they got to me, I was like, "Yep, I'm another one of them." Um, and and I didn't think that they looked twice at me, but the show started, and I was like one of the first names called. Um, and because you have to use your your legal name, it was Patrick Powers. Come on, down. and nobody calls me Patrick. I mean, people who've known me my whole life are like, right. "Who's who's Patrick?" Um, so I went <clears throat> and I got on stage and uh, <laughs> and uh, then it's time to spin the big wheel. And and I got up there and I was like, all right, I've seen old ladies spin this wheel like surely I can spin this. Well, I underestimated the weight of the wheel. <laughs> it's heavy, huh? It's heavy. Or I was also like a man child. Uh, so I spun the wheel and it was like beep. 
<laughs> it was barely moving. And I was like, oh, my God, if it doesn't go around once, you know, then you get booed off the stage and you have to spin again. It went around exactly once and landed on a dollar, like exactly once. And so I'm going nuts. And I've got like 12, 15 friends there. So they're they're going yes. nuts. I mean, like, we just took over CBS that, that day. So I'm going nuts. And I was like, yeah, baby. And then the next person comes up and they spend a dollar. And I was like, wait, what the? <laughs> and then the third person comes up and they spend a dollar. And, and my buddy Bob Barker was like, I believe this is the first time we've ever had this happen. Oh my so God. now we have to spin again. And I was like, oh, here's where my joyride comes to an end. But I, I somehow won. So yes, I made it all the way to, to the showcase showdown at the end. And, and, uh, what did you win? Did you win something? No, because at, at age 22, I didn't know the how price much, of the washing machine <laughs> or worse, a cruise on the Panama Canal. Oh my God. I shit you not. A I would have been like two, $200? I was like $5 million. <laughs> a cruise on the Panama Canal. Oh, my but, God. But I had my, my moment in the sun, and and I, I cracked up Bob Barker on, on TV, and, and we it was it, it was a wild ride. So that, that was my L.A. Did showcase Did you put experience. that in your reel? Did you put that in your reel? No. Please tell me you put no, that in your reel. Okay. I, I, I have oh, it. Oh, please. I, I, I just I just found it on, on a VHS uh, cassette. Put, but If you don't put that in your reel, I'm going to come to Chicago. <laughs> I'm kill you. Kill you. <laughs> wait, so, wait, hang on. The irony of it being called the Showcase Showdown. I mean. Yeah. You, so funny. My, I've my never first, put that together. Oh! My first free idea was the book you're going to write. And my second free idea is that you've got to write a play. <laughs> For a movie called The Showcase Showdown, and it's about the group of people going to L.A., finding less than zero interest in them and having... Does Bob Barker... Sm- what does he smell like? Does he smell he's good? Dead. He smells really know, bad now. He smells like dead, I mean. Like the... the- the layers of makeup and, and and work and like when when yeah. you get up close you're like am i in a wax museum I because mm-hmm. i feel like i'm at ripley's are you are you actually fantastic i just thought he probably smelled like aquanet i thought you know because that yeah. hair that quaff was always if you high and tight. if you had on your bingo card that i would dish dirt about bob barker <laughs> um, <laughs> you are the winner <laughs> Oh, Ladies and gosh. gentlemen, please spay and neuter your pets. <laughs> your pets. <laughs> and say thank you to PJ Powers for a lovely interview. Thank you so much. I'm happy to have PJ, thank you. liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!